COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way we eat. It's changed how we buy food, it's changed what food we're eating, and it's really an interesting question to consider whether that's a long-term change or whether we'll revert at least partly back to some of the uh, habits we had beforehand. To dig into that a little bit, I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation with Dana McCauley, who uh, I've had several interesting conversations with about sort of where we're going with respect to food. Dana is the Director of New Venture Creation at the Research Innovation Office at the U of G, where she helps entrepreneurs bring new products to the market. In her previous life, she worked in and thought a lot about food product development, and it was in that context uh, that I thought uh, I would have a conversation with her. We started talking a little bit about you know, what we saw as some important trends beforehand, how those have maybe modified and what might change as we begin to emerge from the isolation caused by the pandemic. Our conversation ranged much wider than I expected it would, but I think you'll find it interesting. Before we begin with my conversation with Dana, I just want to remind you that uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review that helps uh, people find the podcast and as our audience is growing we appreciate any support that, that we can get from you and thank you for listening uh, and without further ado let's go straight to my conversation with Dana. Well hello Dana and thanks for taking the time today. Oh it's always a pleasure to chat with you Mike. What I wanted to chat with you about today is to talk about how COVID might be changing how companies are thinking about bringing products to the market, what's going to be important to consumers, what's going to be uh, less important to consumers. And, and I realize it's early days, but between the two of us, maybe bring some perspective. So before we get to that, let's take a quick look back and say March 1st or January 1st, before we had any inkling of how substantial the changes in our, in our lives generally and our eating habits particularly were going to be, what were some of the things that you saw as being sort of interesting or hot in the food space? To monitor that kind of thing, I always look at, uh, one, what I see out there in the world of uh, uh, media and uh, social media, you know, the types of mentions and things. And then, like you, I get uh, asked by, by the media and industry a lot to offer opinions, and their questions are often really helpful in understanding uh, and validating what you see out there in, in common speech. And certainly plant-based meat alternatives. I think you and I both talked about almost nothing else last fall when we were interviewed. Uh, cannabis edibles were certainly something everyone was buzzing about and wondering how they would disrupt grocery and bars and restaurants and, and everything else. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, the uh, perennial or they've become perennial uh, gluten-free, keto, low carb uh, topics were all still very much of interest. Uh, and, you know, there was um, a lot of other things popping up uh, and, and looking like they were showing promise, but uh, really those were the things that were on everyone's mind. Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right. So, are those still the things that that you think are on consumers' minds and therefore on product developers' minds, or or have we seen a shift given current circumstances? Well, I think we see a temporary shift in people's behavior, and I think that's because 
the true form of the word disruption. We use it a lot in, in the innovation world and the product development world. And, uh, and it often has a really positive connotation in that respect. It creates a new market, you know, it disrupts, uh, you know, the industry and creates growth. But in this case, it was a really negative disruption. And you saw consumers like just like knocked back on their heels and returning to past behaviors and starting to try to comfort themselves with the familiar and things that took a lot of time to fill in this extra time at home. It's all of a sudden you're not, you know, standing in line at the airport for two hours. Well, what do you do with that two hours, right? So we saw a lot of people making sourdough starters and baking breads and cookies and pies and all of these things that are really um, harken back to our grandmothers and our mothers more so than to our modern behavior. I, I think that home cooking hopefully will continue to be more a part of people's everyday lives even after covid when we you know go back to you know going to conferences and having children needing to be at brownies and uh, karate and all that kind of stuff but i do think that we'll fall back into a lot of our our past behaviors as well i think you know this is a, sort of the the warm, fuzzy blankie of, of baking <laughs> to comfort us. It's interesting because in addition to sort of having the time and looking for distraction and sort of, as you said, to a degree, the comfort of baking and cooking more. Uh, and I, and I, I'm guilty. I have not yet started a, a sourdough starter, although it's on the list. I am baking bread and uh, experimenting in that a little bit. I, I could see as our lives get back to the to the hectic sort of scramble, and and that will probably happen slowly. That some of it might fall away. The other thing I think that's supporting some of this increase in cooking at home is also more planning of meals because we are shopping less frequently. There are bigger mm -hmm. times between shops, so we have to think more explicitly about. Do you think that's true too, or or is that just me? projecting what's happening in our household. No, I think that and and in tandem, the fact that we can't just, you know, at six o'clock go, geez, I'm hungry. Let's go grab something and, and you know, grab the car keys or, or walking shoes and, and head out to the nearest pub for whatever this, this daily special is. We have to be planning more. And we know that even if there are takeout options, uh, in our neighborhood, there's a there's we know that there's more risk, even with contactless delivery and everything else. We're all all trying to keep our contact points as as uh, minimal as possible, keep our bubbles tightly closed, and uh, and of course, I I feel very grateful that. I work for an organization that uh, can keep me working, but a lot of people are also really concerned about their financial futures. And I saw an article um, earlier this week where the uh, CFO of Vince's Market said that you know their sales of root vegetables are through the roof. And and guess what? What's what's less expensive than a turnip? Uh, not much. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So it, it, I hadn't thought about that. To to me, some of those things are are harder to cook. And, and often take more time than we have in our hectic lives, so people are going back to them. But but cost constraints might also be a big issue there that I hadn't considered. Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of people uh, that, um, 
you know, that, that worry about the, the future, even if right now they, they have supports from the government and their employers, uh, you know, everyone's worried about what the fallout will be. So I, I do think that we are moving towards much more emphasis on value consumers. And to that point, if I were somebody running a product development group at a uh, big company or I was buying for a retail outlet, I would be looking for you know, those, uh, those concepts that deliver real value. So, you know, hit on some of those trends we talked about earlier, like plant-based or keto, clean label, but also do so at, uh, at a price that makes people feel like, you know, that has an emotional bottom line. It makes you feel smart. (laughs) You know, I don't think uh, a lot of us will be splurging on, on, uh, you know, truffle oil uh, this fall. I think, uh, I think we might be be a little more frugal. It's interesting that, that I, I was going to come back to the plant-based protein alternatives. I wonder if, and I'd be interested in your perspective, I wonder if to a degree we've taken the wind out of the sales of plant-based because a significant part of that early demand that we were seeing was happening in food service. And with mm-hmm. food service away and us going back to the familiar and comfort food, do you think that, that that trend may have taken a step back, not to go away permanently, but perhaps to slow down and, and then reemerge when we get back to more of a routine that includes eating out? I think that, that you're you're probably you know, really astute in that comment. I think if we were to graph it, you know, we would have seen this you know big spike up, and now we're probably on a, a very gently sloping up plateau. And you know, there'll probably be another spike when we start going back to more normal flow of news, and we start uh, thinking about climate change again, and 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 becoming a little more um, focused on our, our own needs uh, uh, as far as our own our own diets and and health and things go. I, I certainly know that uh, things that uh, come to market that are really delicious and are lower calorie than uh, their conventional uh, items will probably be on my shopping list because all this cooking and staying at home has not made me uh, beach ready. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. We are probably, I think, a, a combination of getting less exercise and eating more perhaps grazing more in my household. Yes. I think I'd suffer from the same uh, from the same thing. It was interesting that you talked about sort of value propositions and that people will be looking more for sort of core value-oriented products. And, and, and does that mean we're moving away? One of the things that I think that was interesting happening in food was that we were seeing sort of this I'm not sure what the right word is, the compartmentalization of demand so that we're getting this proliferation of choice with individual products with different attributes. And, you know, I I may sound like a stay off my lawn, grumpy old man, but, you know, when I was a kid, there were, uh, there were, you know, five or six varieties of mustard on the store shelves. And now, there are 60, 70, 80 varieties. And and not that we all want that much choice, but that different consumers want different choices. Mm-hmm. But that sort of increases the, the cost because we're doing smaller runs and it's more niche and it's produced differently and all of those sorts of things. Do you, do you think that we may then move away from that in the move to finding value or, or does that sustain? 
It's a really interesting question. I, I, I think I'm going to spend some time thinking about that after we finish this conversation. But my, my initial response is that if I were heading up a R&D team uh, and an operations team, and it was my responsibility to make sure that my manufacturing company always kept my customers, the retailers happy, I would right now be going and looking at my supply chain and getting rid of as many ingredients that I only had one supplier for or that had very short shelf lives because I'd be wanting to keep more inventory of the things that could be disrupted. So for instance, if there's an outbreak in the fall in, say, California, and I use tomatoes. Well, I better have another tomato supply other than just California because you want to be able to prevent these shortages we saw when everyone went, you know, madly pantry stocking again. And uh, if you're not on shelf, you're not selling and you're not making money, right? So if by, by going down that type of thinking and having to use more of your inventory space for those essential items, we may see some contraction in the number of SKUs that manufacturers offer. That said, we have four demographics in the marketplace right now who have buying power, you know, the boomers, Gen X, the uh, millennials who we have talked to death about, and now emerging Gen Z, which I've decided to start calling um, the crisis generation because, you know, they were born around 9-11. They dealt with SARS and wars and uh, the 2008 recession. And now, you know, God forbid they're in the middle of uh, COVID at the beginning of their, their adult lives. So, uh, so we've got some very distinctly different types of buyers in the marketplace who want distinctly different things. So it, there's going to be a really interesting tension and balancing point between offering uh, lots of choice, but being sure that you can keep your business rolling and uh, not have a lot of costly interruptions. And that's interesting because we've seen the reduction in SKUs in some areas where we've seen a dramatic increase in demand. Uh, Statistics Canada came out with the report this week on grocery shopping and flour was up 200% in, in the first two weeks of the lockdown and was up about 100% in the subsequent couple of weeks. And that likely would have been higher if if product had been available. It's, I spoke yesterday to a small local flower producer who I went to and got some flour from. Nice. And incidentally, will be on a future episode of, of the podcast. But she said that her demand was up 3,000% uh, since the lockdown. And so her issue wasn't with the supply of grain, uh, wheat, uh, rye, and those. Her issue was with the supply, and this is what's happened with some of the the bigger flour producers was with packaging yeah. and 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 those sorts of things. And the, and the other thing is to manage production. Those big guys have also lowered or, or reduced their portfolio, so they're not producing mm-hmm. multigrain flour. They're just going like crazy to get catch up with the all-purpose flour demand. Exactly. Uh, but you think that that's something that might actually continue after afterwards? This sort of consolidation inventory buffers and reducing risk of of potential stockouts in the future 
Yeah, and I think I'd choose not to use the word after. I think during. I, no one is expecting this to end anytime soon. That's the thing, right? Is that we're looking, you know, at the day that we're taping. Yesterday's news uh, was about how countries who seemed like they flattened the curve, South Korea and Germany, how they are having flare-ups now that they've started to open things up again. So we really don't know, um, you know, how long it's going to take to get back to, you know, a space where this um, virus becomes something that our our societies can manage both, you know, as, as volume and uh, we get herd immunity or a vaccine or what have you. So after we have it under control, then I think it's a very different landscape. But we have definitely have uh, from everything I've heard, and obviously I'm not you know, any kind of a, of a, an expert on viruses or, or immunity or anything of that case. But my understanding is we're, you know, we've got at least two years of, of figuring this out. And two years of figuring out what the food environment looks like, uh, you mm. know, to, to me, and this isn't something that, that I thought we'd chat about, but maybe we'll take a minute. I think one of the sectors most profoundly impacted in the long term is the food service sector and that oh, it yeah. will be much much slower to come back and the reality of our restaurant experiences will be significantly different uh, simply because of social distancing requirements and it's mm-hmm. not somewhere that you can wear a mask if you're going to eat and and if we've got plexiglass dividers between tables that that sort of atmosphere of eating out will be different and so it'll be interesting to see what that does to the retail experience uh, as we try and replicate sort of social experiences but maybe doing them at home i agree i think that uh, we're going to see and we already had you know been talking about the melding of food service and retail for a number of years and we're really seeing it come to fruition with you know, people uh, who run uh, organizations like Eataly and, uh, you know, the Longos chain and Whole Foods where, you know, the integrating eating and dining experiences into into their retail formats. And now these poor restaurateurs will need to find other revenue streams if they're going to be able to sustain their businesses because, Almost all of them have concepts that are, are work, uh, work around volume and turning tables and, and having very little distance between them. So how will they start to yeah, deal with that instead of you know, having people jammed in elbow to elbow at a bar, which is one of my very favorite things to be part of, uh, will they use that space to sell groceries, to sell meal kits, to sell ready meals or something I haven't even thought of yet? You know, if we have to have a reservation to go to a restaurant, will we also have to have a reservation to go to the grocery store? Like uh, I had to have, you know, paid for my garden center order and have my order number the other day when I pulled up and I was only allowed to put down my window and say, I'm order 40, Uh, you know, so it's happening already. And if we have to share the name and address of everybody in our restaurant party, when we make our reservation, well, yeah, that's going to, that's going to kind of kill the vibe. Yeah. And have our temperature taken as we walk in. And and, uh, I I saw something today in a New York newspaper that one restaurant is going to put mannequins in. uh, So the doctor... They're, they're not going to take tables out. They're going to put mannequins in 
to to at least create the feel of of, of closeness and and, and restaurants horrible. also. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think restaurants uh, are, are also going to be challenged. Everyone's always said dining rooms are what generates the money. And we have these postage stamp sized kitchens where cooks go into battle together in, yeah. in close proximity. Uh, we're going to have to rethink the kitchen, too. Well, and the manufacturing line, right? So that's yeah. already come to, you know, the forefront of consumers' minds with, you know, all of the meat plant closures. And of course, that means that you're going to have a lot less efficiency. You're going to need a lot more square feet to run a line. Will inline manufacturing continue to be our go-to setup for a food factory? Or will we start to have, you know, satellite pods where, you know, uh, one thing is done and then it's trolleyed or conveyed to another section. So I think that the, the food manufacturing engineers have their work cut out for them as well, because so much of the cost, the low cost, I would say, of our, our groceries uh, here in Canada and most of, of the westernized world relies on inline manufacturing and, and that very close proximity of, of people uh, to one another to be profitable. Well, it's interesting. You and I are, are, are thinking very similarly. I, I had a discussion with someone yesterday about beef processing and said what we might see eventually is sort of a, an increased degree of modularity where we break the activities apart mm-hmm. a, in order to facilitate the spacing. And all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's restaurants or inline manufacturing, all increase the cost of food production. So I think, you know, in the long run, as we make some of these adjustments, it's it's likely to have an impact on increasing the cost of food, whether eaten at home or eaten out. And again, that might cause some of us to go to sort of say reduce the diversity and and look for some of those value things. Yeah, and in some ways it's a bit of a reset. So I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Lee, but he's he's somebody I always enjoy working with. He he runs a company out of New York City. I think it's called the Future Laboratory, although I might have that wrong. Anyhow, long story short, Mike wrote a really um, great piece for Medium a couple of years ago that I I always remember because, it, you know, he talked about how empathy for the consumer had led us to creating all of these great products and selections and, you know, working on price to deliver value. But how, you know, something that we should strive for as a food industry is also including empathy for the planet into our um, our equation. And I would say that, you know, this crisis has highlighted the types of people who get us through these crises. And it is the people working at the grocery store. It is the people working in the food plant as well, of course, all the healthcare workers and delivery people. And I think having been part of the food manufacturing world for a good 10 years of my career, I can say that I was always pretty happy to be in the executive suite and not be on the line. And maybe this is a, 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 a rallying point where we will improve working conditions and pay and where, you know what, people actually maybe want those jobs because maybe they won't be, you know, just demoralizing and exhausting. And it may become a differentiator in the marketplace that that if it becomes important to consumers, 
uh, that it'll be it'll be something that company that becomes an inherent part of of a company's brand. Yep, I agree. As where we're starting to pay more attention to how food is produced, maybe it will lead to an increase in 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 consideration for how food is processed. I agree. I think that would be um, you know what if there are going to be silver linings of of this terrible time and these these huge losses that we've had to you know members of our community and their families then if it's that we yeah up our empathy for the people who do really important work and that can become part of a unique selling proposition for uh for companies then you know what that's 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 something right that's exactly right. Well, Dana, there were there were many other topics that I was hoping to talk to you about. So what I'm going to say is I hope that you'll indulge me and come back another time and have a conversation with me because we've we've run out of time today. I really appreciate you taking the time and really enjoyed hearing your perspective on on some of the food changes both within the COVID crisis and as we sort of slowly emerge. So thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, it was really valuable for me too. Your questions have got me thinking about a lot of new things. So I I do hope we get to do it again. Well, stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks, Mike. You too. As we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, say thanks to Max Graham for making us sound great. Uh, We get to have the interesting conversations and Max does the hard work of, of cleaning it up. Quick thanks to Zach Von Masso for the original music that we use uh, to transition. I also wanted to take a minute to remind you of uh, the foodfocusguelph.ca website. You go check out our blog, which gets updated at least once weekly with issues uh, related to food, just like the podcast, and gives you a place that you can get a hold of us as well. If you want to make suggestions for episodes of the podcast, you have questions, uh, we're open to any of it. And one more reminder that uh, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, submitting a review wherever you get your podcast helps others find us as well. So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it uh, and stay in touch.